Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Mary Watson is one of my favorite people. We met many years ago when she sent me her lessons for African-American families. They were so powerful, I ran them in my newspaper column in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. What made the lessons even more powerful was that Mary grew up in a family shattered by poverty, mental illness, and alcoholism. Her world was mired in chaos and confusion. Her mother suffered from mental illness, and her dad was an alcoholic. When she was 15, Mary and her siblings were broken up as a family and scattered into foster care. And yet somehow, Mary had a fierceness and a clarity of spirit that nothing could diminish. She made up her mind that she wanted to be a teacher, one better than the ones who treated her so shabbily as a child. Mary would graduate from the College of Brockport, a state university in New York, magna cum laude, and later was the recipient of a full graduate assistantship at the University of Toledo, where she received a master's in early childhood education and reading. Mary's the author of Wisdom Warriors, her debut book. She joins me today to talk about how to transform pain into power and hurt into helping others. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Regina. This is an honor. I'm humbled. Oh, I still remember you contacted me with that great list of lessons. And I think it was a time about family reunions. And you talked about how important it was, especially for African-American families who were so split up during slavery and, and the whole idea of family was shattered. And to come up with this guide for them, I thought was so powerful. Well, thank you, Regina. It came about because my husband was hosting a family reunion in Cleveland and most of his relatives were coming up on a bus from Fort Lauderdale. And I wasn't very excited about the reunion and my husband was wondering why. And I said, you know, a lot of the nieces and nephews aren't doing well. I said, so, you know, just gathering and eating food and having a good time is not enough for me. So he said, well, why don't you do something? So I thought about it. I thought about it. And uh, the next day, I, I had this thought of, well, African-American History Month is, used, is 28 days. And why don't I think of something that a child could think of for every single day of the month, even if their school wasn't celebrating it? So that's how I came um, about doing that. And to be honest with you, it just flowed. The first... 14 just flowed. And I said to myself, oh, my goodness, the next day I was worried about whether or not I could do 14. And in two days, I had the 28 lessons. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, we're going to talk about some of those lessons a little bit later. But I want to talk a, a little bit about your family growing up. We're both from families of 11 children. And I think that drew me to you also. And a lot of times people go, oh, you had such a great mom. You had 11 kids. And you and I look at each other like, well, not quite the case. I mean, my mom did the best she could with what she had. But your parents had a lot of other things they were grappling with. Can you sort of paint a picture of your childhood family for us that you're comfortable with? Yes. I would like to say that it felt like chaotic terror. Uh, My mother suffered from severe undiagnosed mental illness where she heard voices. She always thought that the phone was tapped and she was always throwing things and very angry, very volatile. My father was an alcoholic. My mother would send me to the bars to pick him up sometimes and tell him to come home. And I had an older brother that was very angry and would beat us. 
and uh, my parents wouldn't do anything about it. And so I always was in fear at home. There was, I don't ever remember a moment when I felt totally relaxed. And I took the place of a mother for my family because my mother couldn't mother us. And it was a very unloving environment to be raised in. And you were the second oldest of 11. Yes, the second oldest of 11. I I did a lot of the cooking and the cleaning and helping with homework. I literally took the place of a mother for my family. That always sounds noble to other people, but I look at my grandchildren at the age of six and seven and eight. And when I think of a child not having that parent and becoming parentalized at that age, you don't really get to have a childhood. I didn't. I, I did not have a childhood in any respect. My, because my mother couldn't mother in any respect and my father was absent. And I was hoping to get some nurturing from school, but that didn't happen either. So um, I just immersed myself in learning because I knew my purpose when I was six years old. I fell so in love with learning that I forced my brothers and sisters to play teacher. And I'd <laughs> sit them down and I'd teach them a lesson. And then I'd mark their papers and give them homework. So I knew that purpose when I was six years old. So it's almost like you were born with that because that wasn't modeled for you. No. No, when I went to school, I just, that's when I discovered how smart I was. But the teachers weren't very affirming. My first grade, I didn't go to kindergarten. I uh, went to first grade and my teacher basically ignored me. I was an introvert anyway, but I was hypersensitive to racism And I really felt like she was treating me different because I was African-American. I was one of only a couple. And one specific incident um, sticks out for me where I had a sore throat. And I told the teacher I was on free and reduced lunch and I was drinking my milk and my throat was on fire. And I told the teacher I couldn't drink my milk. And she looked at me disgusted and said, drink your milk. And I started crying and she sent me to the principal And the principal told me to open my mouth and I opened my mouth and she looked down my throat and she said, there's nothing wrong with you. That night I had to go to the hospital with tonsillitis. Oh my goodness. And so, you know, I, but I saw how smart I was, but it was never affirmed till much later uh, during my schooling by teachers. They didn't affirm it at all. They rarely said anything to me about how smart I was, even though I was getting A's mostly A's in school. So it was the love of learning that um, I wanted to be able to teach others because um, I just thought education was so important. And I didn't really know why when I was young, why it was so important, but just intuitively, I just felt like education was going to be my way out. But I didn't know why as a child. So you had teachers that weren't very uh, attuned to the child you were, and you were also very kind of a shy, observant, reflective kind of, we we might even call them highly sensitive today, where you kind of absorb everything. So you have all the chaos at home, and then you don't really have anybody to lean on at school. I wondered what reading meant to you. It seems like, for me, it was such an escape in a family of 11 books. The library was like heaven to me. Yes, and for me as well. I fell in love with reading because I could find the mother I desired in a book, I could find the family I desired in a book. I could find the friends I desired in a book. 
I could find anything I wanted in a book. But early on, I fell in love with animal stories because, again, I was hypersensitive to racism and I didn't like the fact that I wasn't represented in books, that I didn't see Black people in books. And so my very favorite book was The Little Red Hen. And it was my favorite book because she wanted these animals to help her plant seeds and nobody would help her. And then when she planted the seeds herself and baked the bread, they wouldn't help her bake the bread. But when she finished baking the bread, they wanted some of the bread. And she said, no way, no way. I'm going to eat this all by myself. So that story for me, let me know that I was on my own and that I had to see my way through. And it really reverberated in me when I was in fourth grade and we were evicted because we were on welfare my entire life and we were moving constantly. And on this one particular day, all our belongings were placed in the street. I'm in fourth grade and I'm a child and I see my parents arguing about where we were going to go. And I said to myself, oh my God, we're going to be living in the street. Well, we eventually ended up in a boarding house in um, Newark, New Jersey. But I never forgot that moment. I realized at that moment that I was going to have to save myself somehow. And so I immersed myself in school because I knew that if I did, education would get me to where I wanted to go. That is so powerful. You also had a teacher who introduced you to the book, Black Like Me, when you were, I think, in eighth grade, you shared? Yes, yes. Mr. Ulick was, uh, first of all, all my teachers were white until my sophomore year of college. And Mr. Ulick was my eighth grade teacher. And he assigned the book Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. And it was the first time that I felt that my culture was affirmed. I was one of three other Black students in that class. And we were all so grateful to Mr. Ulick for signing that book because all of us knew that there was no way a white person could know what we were feeling unless they were actually black. And he knew this as well as a reporter. And in giving in assigning that book, he was letting us know that we were important to him. And that was invaluable to me and the other African-American students in my class. And he became my favorite teacher Uh, During my years from grades one to grades 12, he was the only teacher that affirmed uh, my culture. That's powerful. So you started to lean on books. The idea of teaching was really powerful. And then you have even more dysfunction at home with your family. I think you said to me uh, one time when you were about 15 is when your family got split up. Yes. Tell us what what happened. Yes. One day, uh, I wasn't expecting them. One day, um, three cars drove up to our house. My parents weren't home. Um, My parents had been charged with neglect. And so the social workers put us in the cars and took us away. And they put four of us in a pre-placement center and the rest in uh, emergency foster care. And that pre-placement center was not nurturing at all. I begged them to put me in a foster home. But... They said I was too old. They didn't want to put someone of my age in a foster home. And so they ended up placing me in a delinquent home with other girls who had committed petty crimes. 
And so I decided that I wasn't going to follow the rules uh, because I found them suffocating. And one day the administrator brought me into his office and he said, listen, do you think you're better than these other girls? And I said, no, I don't think I'm better, but I didn't commit any crimes to belong here. And so he said, well, I'll tell you what, you don't follow the rules and we'll put you in a maximum security place. And so I decided from that moment on, I would follow every rule. But, you know, something I want to mention about that home, they had an Asian girl that was going to college and she lived in a separate house and they had a vocational school on campus that they forced all the students to go to. And I went to the social worker and I said, but I want to be a teacher. And the, I don't, the courses that they offer here will not allow me to go to college. And so she said, well, um, you, you know, you have to prove to us first that you are capable of going to the uh, school uh, uh, in the community. And so they made me stay and go to school for a year. And after a year, my senior year, I was allowed to go to the community school where I was only one, I was one African-American out of 2,000 students. And every day when I would walk to school, it was about a mile, mile and a half, I would be called the N-word. Yeah, I didn't have any friends, but I was on the basketball team. Uh, But none of the girls invited me to their home. And they were very kind to me on the basketball team, but that just lets you know the type of community it is if they felt fearful to bring me into their home. So let me finish up with your family. Did you ever see your brothers and sisters again as a family? Did you guys ever live together? Again? Okay. No, you know, no, we were never returned home. And, you know, the social workers visited our homes many home many times, many times before they took us away. And it angered me that they never, ever asked us children what was going on in that home. They should have taken us away a long time ago. I know some people like to say that they want to keep families together, but I I tell you, if they had sent me back home, we wouldn't be speaking today because I became so depressed that I couldn't imagine living much longer with my family. I didn't see myself taking my own life, but I was just, I just felt hopeless. Uh, And so um, it was better than home. And another thing, I didn't want to see my siblings. Uh, I was just so angry that I wanted to just sever the ties. And so there's only one sibling that I'm in contact with uh, on a regular basis. Um, But the rest, sporadic. There's one brother that I saw only once since I left home. And the remaining brothers and sisters, maybe five or six times uh, since I left home. So powerful, Mary. My goodness. So Mary, you, you leave this home, you're, you're taken away, you're put into this situation that's not so good. You end up in college, though. You end up in yes. a new life. I, yes. I love the look on your face when you just say college. It looks like, yes. wow. Yes. Tell us what was the best of that college experience? Because I, I want people to really yes. come away with the idea that there are people that can help you or hurt you. And you had yes. both, and not many who helped you, but the ones who did, what an imprint they left. Yes. College. My first year of college was not um, a good year. I went to a small women's college in Paxton, Massachusetts, where we were 3% of the population. And um, my first day moving in, um, my white roommate, when she saw my face, decided that she would not stay and she left. 
So I had the room to myself for the rest of the year. Uh, so I knew that I needed to transfer. So I transferred to Brockport State University in Brockport, New York. And that was the best decision of my entire life. I was, I knew I was going to major in education, but one day I came across a door that said African American studies on it. And I was curious. So I walked into the office and I asked questions and I decided that I was going to take classes because it was about my culture. Uh, and by the way, I'm African. My father is from Sierra Leone, West Africa. And all of the African-American professors were so nurturing, so knowledgeable. I fell in love with their teaching. I felt like I was reborn. I felt like I had come home. My very favorite professor is Dr. Herbert Douglas. Uh, I found him to be very intimidating and very abrasive, so I didn't do well on his first test. And he had me meet with him in his office and he said, what is this all about? You are a very intelligent young woman. And I was very truthful with him. And I said, uh, you intimidate me. And he was amused. He just looked at me and he said, okay, listen, if you want to take your test from now on in my office, you can do that. But that's all I needed to hear. I did not need to go to his office to take any further tests. He was the one who wrote my um, recommendation for the full assistantship to Toledo University, where he had uh, received his PhD. One of my professors, English professor, she invited me to her home for the weekend for Thanksgiving. I had, another, I had a biology professor who I adored. And I really need to mention my husband at this point because I met him my second year of college. We just celebrated our 44th anniversary on Juneteenth. Beautiful. And the reason I'm mentioning him is because he asked to walk me to class one day and I reluctantly agreed. And in the same sentence that he asked me to walk me to class, he says to me, I'm not sure if I can walk you all the way. And I, and I became annoyed and I thought to myself, then why bother? But he walked me to class and my biology professor took a look at him and said, you're going to marry that guy one day. And I said, I just met him. I said, I don't even think I like him at this point. And 44 years later, oh my gosh. Um, so his laid back personality, he's a very confident, very strong, very laid back person, very peaceful. And so he became my boyfriend shortly after and the rest is history. But every single one of my African-American professors, one moved on to be president of a college. Another was the leading economist in the country. It was just a phenomenal experience. I fell so in love with my culture that no one could make me feel inferior after I left that college. Because prior to going to that college, I had a lot of self-hate because my mother could pass for white, actually. And in fact, her grandmother reminded me that most of her family could pass for white before my mother had married my father. My father was very dark-skinned, but very handsome. And my mother would always tell him how she would get him deported whenever they got into an argument, or she would make fun of his color. Um, that's very confusing as a child. Sure. And so I had a lot of self-hate until one day on television, I see Muhammad Ali. 
and he is um float like a butterfly sting yes and but they were interviewing him about not going to fight in the war and he was saying why would i go fight people who haven't done anything to me you know it's here in america that that i need to you know i need to fight racism here in america and i was just so attracted to his boldness and his love of culture that i knew that i had to accept who i am and that there was more to the story than what i was being told all through school and so when i went to brockport state and majored in african american history there were two emotions that two conflicting emotions i felt all at once the first was complete joy and the second emotion was complete anger because the joy came from knowing the truth and knowing that we are an absolutely resilient beautiful culture and anger because i was denied these truths growing up and that the teachers were denied these truths so that is why they treated us so indifferently and you know i remember one instance of winning the spelling bee and the teacher seemed disappointed that i had won so you know it just i i realized then what structural racism was and uh, that professor that became my mentor there's two ideas that i think about every single day that he taught me one was we are always blaming the victim instead of the oppressor and the other is i don't want to hear an argument from you if you don't have facts to back it and so you know these people who are emotionally attached to racism lack the truths that they need in order to realize that they have been duped as much as we have been duped very powerful well mary we are already at the halfway part so i want to pause just for a moment and thank all of us for listening to little detours with regina brett and to our guest mary watson i know you have many podcast choices and i'm so grateful that you chose to listen to mine well mary i, I there's so much we could talk about but i want to make sure we get some of your lessons and talk about your book let's move into the, your 28 lessons for african-american families I'm so impressed that you came up with so many of these when you had so little uh, as a child growing up. I- I'm going to go through a few of them, and, and I'll mention your website later where people can find them. One was, we will celebrate African-American beauty. It comes in a variety of shades, facial features, and hair textures. Yeah. And this is so powerful. I remember the day I went to buy uh, a card for a woman at work who was having a baby. And she's an African-American woman. There was not one card that had a picture of a black baby. And then that was the first time I ever realized, oh my gosh, I can't even find a card. What is it like to never see your beauty reflected? Right. And I love that you kept her that in a lesson to celebrate that. Yes. Yes. That to me is most important because that's what you see when you look in the mirror. You see your blackness. You know, my students every single year would make fun of each other make fun of hair textures, make fun of the skin tones. They, would sit, they wouldn't sit in the sun when we were outside for gym or what have you, or for track meets. I was a track coach. They just made disparaging remarks about themselves all of the time. And so it was important to me to teach them 
about their beauty. And so whenever they would make a disparaging remark, we would have a conversation about it. And our conversations were always met with, oh, what do I, what's the word I want to think of? Maybe joy is what comes to mind because I think they could feel that I was being sincere and they respected my knowledge. But that self-hatred can derail you from learning and can depress you to the point where you feel hopelessness. You know, and, and this goes back to parents sometimes too, because a lot of parents will tell kids, you know what, that's just the way it is. You know, just deal with it. Well, they're not adults. So what do you mean deal with it? So a child would deal with it in their way, which is, well, to just feel hopelessness and to feel like maybe some of those things are true since the parents are putting the onus on them instead of the person who is saying these disparaging things to them. So it's just so important that parents don't tell children what they don't believe as well. So for example, a parent might say, be proud of who you are. And then they'll hear that same parent want to guess what color a a baby will be, hoping that it will be a lighter you, a a lighter person than a darker person. And, And a child is not, a child is keenly aware of what that means, that you would value them if they were lighter. And so we have to be careful of the conflicting messages that we send children. And since children aren't, a lot of children aren't nurtured in school. By the way, just yesterday on the news, they were saying that suicide for Black kids has skyrocketed. And so that comes from self-hate and depression and a sense of hopelessness. Well, and I love that your your message is really one of hope. Let me read another one of your uh, lessons. We will seek to surround ourselves with greatness. If we don't have a father in the home, we will seek out positive adult father role models in our community so we may learn to be young men. If there is no mother in the home, we will surround ourselves with positive mother models so that we may learn to be young women. And I just love that because so much of what you had to do this, and now you can take the worst of what you went through and really turn it into kind of a light for others. Right. Yes. You know, a book I read recently was saying from the most horrific experiences, you can have a nourishing life if you accept that you are now responsible for your life moving forward. And so I knew that there was nothing that I could say or do that would give me the mother that I desired. And so I looked for that in another woman. Uh, And I found it in a Jewish woman, actually, who was the mother of my husband's best friend. I absolutely adored her. She was so compassionate. She was very loving. And uh, she passed away about a year or so ago. And uh, at her funeral, her grandson talked about how she was so despondent over racism and He said that one of his favorite things that he did with his grandmother towards the end of her life was watching the documentary by James Baldwin. So she was the type of person that not only did she abhor racism, but she did what she could in her power to let others know that she stood against injustice. And um, I miss her and I think about her a lot. Oh, I'm so glad you had her. And I'm so sorry you lost her. Sounds like she 
She really made it a real imprint on your heart, Mary. Mary, let me just, one last lesson of these 28. They're all so beautiful. We will recognize that through positive personal choices, we will not repeat critical family mistakes in the generations to follow. We will become what our purpose in life is by consistently making good choices. That idea that we have to use the power that we do have. You know, we might not have a lot of power in the world, especially African-Americans have have been so oppressed on so many levels, but the power you do have, like you talked about, what are you going to do with it moving forward? Is so And I think that's that's actually asking too much of children. However, Mm -hmm. it is their reality. And so what I say to that is, As difficult as that may be in an environment of racism, our ancestors had it far worse. And it is our job to move the baton forward. And they brought us to the point of where we are now. It's now our turn. And so I call on the adults to guide our young people and to, you know, like in Africa, Children were thought of as sacred, as sacred. We didn't beat our children until we learned it from slave masters. And we need to go back to that, to treating children. They are our most precious resource. We should treat them as if they are our own. And so I implore the adults to step in because what they're expecting from kids is what you should expect from adults. That's a good point, Mary. Mary, I want to. We just got a couple of minutes here. I want to talk about your book, Wisdom Warriors. Yeah. It's a series of short stories featuring Grandpa Marv, Grandma Mary, and Sky. I, I love the the name Sky. It just makes it seems like anything's possible. It's so vast, you know. How did you come up with these characters? What are they based? Well, well first of all, African tradition teaches you that the grandparents are held in the highest of esteem for their wisdom. So I figured I would have grandma and grandpa impart their wisdom on sky. I came upon the word sky when I was working in a charter school in Cleveland and I fell in love with her name. And so I decided I would use sky as the name for the very reason that you just said. Uh, And also one day when I was teaching at this charter school, One of the girls blurted out and said to me, Miss Watson, you need to write stories to make kids feel good about themselves like you make us feel good about ourselves. And during that same year, kids signed a petition requesting more teachers like me. And so one day when I was cleaning the house, I didn't think much of it, but I thanked them very much uh, because other students jumped in and affirming that. And one day I was vacuuming. And my first story came to mind. I thought, that's it. That's it. I had always wanted to write stories, but I didn't want to write the simple story where you have a problem and it's solved. I knew I needed to write a deeper story. And so I came upon my first story about culture because this sky doesn't want to be the same brown color of her grandpa anymore. She used to love being the same color as grandpa. And then one day something happens at school and she no longer wants to be that color. And so grandpa, in his wisdom, has a conversation um, with her about her culture and the culture's beauty. And so there's a a solution to every story. 
as he's consoling her, she's not 100% convinced until grandpa says to her, you know what, I have an idea. I'm going to sign up for speaker day at your school and I will tell them all about your beautiful culture. So she bought into that. Uh, she, She truly, she bought into that. And so um, she decided from that point on that she would love who she is. That is beautiful, Mary. I almost feel like you created the girl that you were buried under underneath all the racism and poverty and, and shame and all that, that, that beautiful sky is really Mary Watson. You know what? It's me, but it's also my daughter, Miranda. She's the same color as her dad. And actually that she had an incident at school. So that was based on her. Well, and I love how you address these really heavy issues in such a tender way. You address racial profiling, incarceration, police, the idea of mental illness, child abuse, substance abuse, all these things that kids are bumping up against, white or black, whatever. I mean, whether they're in their home or at their school, somebody's facing it, but you do it in a way that there's a gentleness around it, like a little bit of a buffer, and yet you get the truth in there. Yes, all the characters are from real life uh, uh, incidents. In one of my stories, the the white friend, Melissa, uh, is really a a white student named Noelle, who I taught in fourth grade. She was very shy. And I had no idea what she thought about me, but it was very important what all kids thought about me because I I didn't want to do harm, do no harm. Right. So about 10 years after I had her in fourth grade, one day I saw this young woman walking into Walmart and I thought it was her. So I called out the name and she says, Mrs. Watson. And she starts crying. She starts crying. And she says to me, Mrs. Watson, you were my favorite teacher. And she said, I became a teacher because of you. And I teach the same grade that you taught me in. So that was that particular character, Noelle. Everything is based on something that actually happened. I just want to close with uh, your answer to this question, Mary. What's the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? What I do every day is I try to make a difference. It can be something as small as give someone a smile. It could be something like paying for a senior citizen meal. Mary, I want to thank you for all your wisdom today. And I hope people can learn more about you at reginabrett.com. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show, so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.